The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Jose's tyrannical trophy trip gives Roma top billing in the conference. We look ahead to the Champions League final. Will it be Trent's treble or Carlo's quadruple? Meanwhile, in the Championship, Huddersfield plan mass deforestation. There's Ernest Eric checking in at United, Chelsea's takeover and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Welcome in then, listener. Matt Davis-Adams filling in for the Totally Show's strongest man, Jimbo. In the pod on Four Waters is the 26th of May. The author of Outside the Box, a statistical journey through the history of football, Duncan Alexander. Hi, Duncan. Hello, Matt. Also with us, the author of Mr., the man who gave the world the game, Rory Smith. Hi, Rory. Hello. And Carl Anker, winning co-author of You Are a Champion, art imitating life on Monday as you scooped a pair of gongs to become even more of a champion, I guess, at the British Book Awards. Tell us more. Ahoy hoy, Matt. Uh, yes, I, I went to the British Book Awards, aka the Nibbies, uh, and uh, You Are a Champion won Best Children's Nonfiction Book of the Year uh, and Overall Book of the Year. So, um, yeah, I've put one by my desk i'm holding it now for the benefit of everyone on this podcast and the extra award is in the other bathroom in true kate winslet style so any guests that come around can hold it and, and give <laughs> their own thank you speech to everyone else magnificent um well deserved it's uh, it's an amazing amazing book that's done amazingly well and, and you're amazing for having written it i would like carl to define the other bathroom what's the, <laughs> what's the other you're bathroom doing this in yeah. In a bathroom. Well, it could be that he's in a bathroom, or do you have like a designated other bathroom that you don't use but guests do? It is the latter. Okay. So they, they, I have an ensuite in, in, in the main bedroom, and then if a guest comes around, they have a bathroom as well. Um, That's very nice. Would you would you ever use that for just, just for a change? Sometimes I use it as a thinking time sit-down, shall we say. <laughs> so if I'm, 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 I'm stuck... On the thought, and I go to the other bathroom because it's not where I normally go. And I sit, not even trousers off, but I just sort of sit there and go, "Am I getting this sentence right?" And and normally it does come to me. Two toilets anchor, boy, you've changed it to parts unknown days. That's for <laughs> sure. Um, speaking of toilets, no awards for Manchester United this season, but Monday was a big day for Eric Ten Hag, unveiled as the new United manager. Whilst across the city, Jack Grealish was taking a leaf from the former United manager Jose Mourinho's book of how to motivate and inspire players. The main person that I want to thank is Bernardo Silva for coming off in the 70th minute because he was miles off it yesterday. Just sounds like Sean Dyche, doesn't it? It's drunk. <laughs> so fun watching that man get progressively drunker and have the much, so much fun. Every now and again, you can watch Steve McManaman on BT Sport when Real Madrid have a big game, and you, you can tell he's getting more and more excited. I'm like, ah, you're going to sleep so well at 2 a.m. You're going to tuck yourself right out. <laughs> uh, and I get that feeling with Jack Grealish in that he's sleeping very well at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. after just the most remarkable Jaeger bomb fueled, excitable drinks around town. That man may never wear a pair of trousers all summer. He's just going to be shorts and flip-flops for a long time. 
what everywhere's it'll be Gucci. What annoys me about that, Rory, as a as a forty year old man, is that he won't even have a hangover the next day, will he? And as we as we can see, he could just get on a plane to Ibiza and party with Wayne Lineker if, if that's the kind of thing. Well, exactly. I saw it described as one of the the great three day stretches in human history by one City fan that he had the Gucci deal, the title, and the parade, and you went you round it off with Wayne Lineker, the the <laughs> what Carl would refer to as the other Lineker. That is, um, yeah. What what more do you want? He's he's living his he's living his best life. Is Jack Grealish? I thought did he did he have a go at Miguel Almiron at some point in the parade as well. Yeah. That seems a bit... That, that's an unnecessary drive-by. I think you're having a, having a pop at your teammates is fine because it's just a little bit of, you know, inter-team banter, but then just randomly selecting a Newcastle player, um, <laughs> which has wound up Newcastle fans. But also, I'm, I'm not against it, to be honest. And it's kind of refreshing to see someone so happy to win the Premier League because it seems in the modern era, it's very much a, a professional achievement. We tick that off, you know, put the medal in a drawer. It's all about next season. Whereas Grealish is just... You know, essentially what we'd be like if we won the Premier League. (laughs) (laughs) And totally overshadowing Eric Ten Hag's unveiling. Um, Carl, you were too busy getting awards to be there, which is a shame because you missed out on a handshake. Everybody else got one. I did, I did. I I also missed out on the second unveiling of his beige suit, which I don't think I've been that shocked by a, a powerful man in a beige or tan suit since Barack Obama tried wearing one a couple of years ago. Ten Hag's press conference was interesting in that he is... We know Tottenham Hotspur were interested in him prior to Nuno Espirito Santo, uh, but they had questions over his English. And as far as I was aware, his English was good, but it just wasn't spoken with an Amsterdam accent, but more of a German cusper based on the region he came from. And then I read the transcript and I watched the interview back and I went, he's speaking English with a very Dutch sentence structure and grammatical rules, which... I imagine he will keep his answers very short in the first batch of press conferences and maybe in the new year he might start speaking more in paragraphs. But for now, I I found it faintly amusing how he was putting his sentences together. And fair play, his English is far better than my Dutch. So go with what you're comfortable with. I I spoke to Ten Hag in that year that, um, that Ajax made the semis. And what I noticed more than anything was just obviously he's Dutch, so he speaks perfect English, but he speaks incredibly fast. And I wonder if that is maybe the thing that he might have to to tone down a little bit, because he is, you know, dealing with with British journalists, and you know we're not used to to lots of thoughts all coming out at once. But he's a really he can tell he's really bright, he's really smart, he's got lots of ideas, and it's like he's like the thoughts are forming so quickly that he has to rush them out. That was kind of how I how I took him, and I wonder if that maybe pronounces or makes makes his 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 sort of the fact that his English is maybe not as as fluid as some of the managers. Maybe that makes it more pronounced. But to be honest, that seems like a really weird thing for Spurs to object to. That is not a... I don't think that's a satisfactory explanation. I had many questions as to how Nuno became the top Motspur manager. And all of them were involved me holding an image of Porto's Champions League victory and Mourinho was at the front and Nuno was at the back. And I just went, why do you think this will work? If this man didn't work as Spurs manager, why do you think this man will work as Spurs manager? Um, but hey ho! Trying to think of other Premier League managers that spoke fast, and probably the the champion is um, Dave Bassett, who spoke at an incredibly fast and high pitched pace. So maybe Ten Hag is the new Harry Bassett. <laughs> I want clarification sometimes, and it's not always because a manager goes up to a referee that he's actually going to have a go at the referee. It might be a quite a simple question uh, which you require clarification. Obviously, there are going to be times where you might be critical 
of one or two of his decisions. Now. This is really in the weeds, but there is definitely like a Premier League manager cadence. Yes. Mm. And it's, I, I always think that the, the perfect speed for a manager to talk is the, is the speed at which you can transcribe what they're Mourinho saying. Mourinho does that. Mourinho is Ev- perfect, yeah. Everything Mourinho does is made to measure for English media. Yeah. And Sarah Shepard once pointed this out at the Athletic, that he speaks at perfect transcription rate yeah. for all journalists. And I, and I think what's very weird is if you compare his first stint at Chelsea to his second stint at Chelsea, you can tell he slowed down because he knows, hang on, if I speak just a little bit slower, these journalists will underst- will get it even better. It, it, it could be that, or it could be that a lot of journalists don't have shorthand anymore, to be honest. And he's, he's worked that out. He's realised that the old skills are dying and that people are just sat there either with tapes or doing it longhand like, like amateurs. So he's maybe <laughs> changed it to reflect the demise of one of the, you know, the traditional core skills of the media. I can imagine Jose doing that. Totally. We'll talk more about Jose Mourinho shortly. But speaking of Northwest managerial movements, Duncan Vincent Company is in talks with Burnley, straight out the Rafael Benitez playbook of, well, it doesn't look like a very good job, but it's quite near my house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, famously, Benitez, like the world, because you could, uh, you know, have horses there. I mean, I don't know whether the the moors of Lancashire are suitable for such things or whether Vincent Company even wants to ride horses. But um, it's a, a not doesn't look like a super attractive job, does it? But um, it does make you think, perhaps, is there a team in the vicinity of Burnley that could loan him some good players for the season, maybe? I don't know. Mm, that's a good shout. Am I being a bit reductive, Rory, to say um, it, it doesn't sound ideal to parachute somebody into a championship job who's never played or managed in the championship let alone at one that has a massive debt that needs to be repaid immediately yeah it's it, it doesn't quite make sense i kind of got it when when the, the the suggestion was that company would be of interest to burnley if they stayed up now that they're in the championship i'm not convinced that that is desperately wise although although duncan's right i wonder whether the appeal to Burnley is that they see company as a shortcut to a load of Man City players on loan. The other thing, and this is a this is a bit kind of hipstery, but it's a bit sad, isn't it, that you'd leave Anderlecht for a, an English Championship team? I mean, it's it's Anderlecht. You know, that's the that's a that was at one point, it's not anymore, but it was a huge club, and it just seems a little bit kind of unfortunate that company, who by all accounts is kind of proud of his work at Anderlecht, I think the results have been a bit up and down, but he he feels he's done quite a good job, that he would he would be prepared to jack that in in favour of kind of you know twice weekly trips to a variety of mill towns around the northwest <laughs> of England. The um, maybe he loves a mill town, who knows? Um, yeah, I think I mean there were slightly... strong links between. Flanders and the English wool industry. So. That is true. That is a good point. And it, it's hard to feel that that's not the connection here, that the mm. company is very is keenly... I imagine he's the sort of person who would be keenly aware of that. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a slightly strange one. And, and the other thing with Burnley is that you kind of think that, as you alluded to, Matt, that their big issue is, is repaying that loan and cutting their costs accordingly. So it's not only is it an unattractive time for company maybe to take them, and, or a challenging time, um, but also is that the kind of manager you need when you are facing this kind of belt-tightening period? Do you need a relatively rookie manager? And also, Carl, if he's hoping for a load of Man City loanees, that's great, but they tend to keep their best young players, don't they, so they can get thoroughly schooled in pet ball? Very much so. And the I fear for Burnley greatly. I had a couple of really good chats with Vincent Company over the 1920 season and very switched on, really was taken into management. He recommended me a book uh, called When Teams Collide, 
which was all about how to to make a, a harmonious dressing room. We've got players from different nationalities, uh, and he said it was really useful for to him uh, to learn how South American players, in particular, sometimes were late to training. And he, he sort of made this argument that if you are from certain countries in South America, you might not have public transport links, and roads might be bad and whatnot, so you can't really guarantee punctuality. So therefore, it can't become a virtue. So you can't necessarily get angry when a certain player rocks up five minutes late for training because they're like, well, I'm five minutes, it's fine. Whereas in Europe, if you're late, it's very much your fault. And he said that was something he really had to learn in terms of captaincy and management. So he's always thinking about those sorts of things, which makes me wonder, what are you thinking about going into Burnley right now? Because With their famously cosmopolitan squad. Yes, yeah. indeed. <laughs> um, big questions, big questions about it all. Well, we'll see if that happens. Anyway, let's move on to the UEFA Europa Conference League final. We'll talk through what happened and why next. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Roma then the first name etched on the frankly beautiful UEFA Europa Conference League trophy. They beat Feyenoord by a goal to nil in Tirana. Rory, they had to withstand a lot of pressure in the second half, didn't they, Roma? It wasn't quite classic bus parking territory, but Feyenoord had plenty of the ball, if not creating loads of chances. Yeah, it was it was very Mourinho. I think it was very kind of reactive, sit back, absorb absorb the pressure, try and try and catch Feyenoord out. I was I've got to say I was really impressed by Feyenoord. I've kind of adopted them as my my Europa Conference League team. I think I think we've all got one now. Through, because I spoke to a fan uh, who'd been all over Europe watching the Conference League, and I, I wanted him to be happy. But I thought they played some really neat stuff. They looked quite clever. They were very confident on the ball. They they had a lot of kind of quite quite technical players that impressed me for a team who are from a smaller lead in Europe and aren't the standout force in that lead. I thought Arna Slot, the coach, did relatively well. And I mean, they hit the post like twice in a minute, and they could have equalised with five minutes to go. So. They will come away feeling, I guess, disappointed that they couldn't take those chances, but but relatively proud. Um, and it obviously meant a lot to Jose because, I mean, Roma don't win a lot of trophies. The first one for 14 years, I think. And a European honour, first European honour for a long, long time. Possibly the first European honour ever. And I think for Mourinho at this stage in his Roma journey, that's probably quite important because he has been brought to deliver silverware. Um, this is not a bad start. Yeah, Jose Mourinho will be really disappointed, I'm, I'm sure, um, Duncan, that a lot of the, the coverage was about him pre and post match. We've got we've got the full gamut here, didn't we? From the why on earth are you celebrating a goal, you fools, mm. to tears on the pitch at full time. Yeah, he's kind of. I mean, if you, like what well, we mentioned earlier, the, the initial um, Mourinho was very much all glamour, no clamour. But these days, it's very much a, a different kind of you know kind of a now now that's why I love Mourinho '97 sort of mixture and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he he did seem angry that the Roma substitutes were celebrating the goal, which seemed a little bit harsh. But it was just classic Mourinho masters. I mean, I looked at his five trophies. Um, and I don't want to sound like the swimming pool attendant again in the day to day. But in two thousand and three against Celtic, fifty six percent possession. Uh, admittedly against Martin O'Neill, but it's still you know fairly, you know fairly constructive. Two thousand four <laughs> in the Champions League final, down to forty five percent. Twenty ten. In, with Inter, 32%. 2017 with United, 33%. And then last night, 33% as well. So basically, his last three European trophies, he's, he's had an average of like 33 32% possession. So 
I mean that, and that's that's over twelve years. So he he's got a method, and it pretty often works. And I think Roma, you know, I know a few Roma fans well, and they're just absolutely delighted. I mean, for them, it's such a, a massive honour, and it's you know, I'm sure the scenes last night in Rome were were exceptional. Yeah, fifty thousand in the Stadio Olimpico, plus James Horncastle, who's written about it for The Athletic. You can check that out now. Um, Carl, in terms of England watch on this, obviously we were all thinking about Tammy Abraham beforehand. He hasn't hasn't learned enough in his year in Italy. He didn't go to ground when brought down to get his opponent the red <laughs> card. But but Chris Morlin was the big story here, wasn't he? He was asked about getting back in the England squad and, and kind of straight batted it. But it's not as if England are blessed with informed centre-backs at the moment. Kind of... Uh, so I, I always go back to, to the statement Gareth Southgate did around about 2018-2019 season where he said, yeah, Chris Mullen's very good, but I, I kind of want more from my centre-backs. And if you look at that performance in the final, Smalling did a lot of good defending, but he didn't have to turn around much. And that's very much how Smalling likes to play. He's quite, you know, very brave. You can be quite good at proactive defending and stepping up and meeting someone to challenge them on a halfway line. But if, if a striker can turn him and he has to retreat towards his own goal, that's where difficult things happen. And if you look not only at Chris Smalling, but other impressive centre-backs who aren't in that England squad, such as Eric Dyer, this is why Sarkate avoids you. Smalling's very good at what Tom Woolville and I used to describe as meat and potatoes style defending. Whereas I think Southgate wants something a little bit more robust, hence him leaning towards Mark Guehi and now uh, Tomori. What's quite touching though, Rory, I thought, to see how much Smalling in particular seemed to enjoy the win. You know, this is somebody who's won the Europa League, won the Premier League, the FA Cup, the, the League Cup, anything you can name. But it, it's clearly, you know, a bit of a revival for him at, at 32 and meant a lot to him. Yeah, I guess, I don't know Chris Smalling at all. I'm not sure if I've ever even spoken to him, but I guess that he might feel that his, he's been written off for quite a long time. And his, you know, his, his start in Rome wasn't particularly glorious. I think he, he faced tricky, a kind of tricky adaptation period. And I guess when you're sold by Manchester United and you're, it's made clear that you're not wanted, even though you probably feel it's not, it's not really your fault, and then you go to a club and it's a, it's a little bit difficult and it all seems to be petering out. When you, when you then get a chance to to win a trophy, and it is a very impressive trophy. You can say what you like about the, the conference league, it's a great trophy. Um, that, that will be a form of, I guess, vindication for you a little bit, that it's a chance to say, actually, do you know what, my career wasn't over when all you people said it was. Uh, Rory, you're a big conference league fan, all of a sudden. Yeah, we um, we did a piece on it a little while ago, I think around the quarterfinals, because I think it, it's hard to deny that it's, it's been a bit of a success, really. Like it, t- The teams involved have have taken it seriously. There was a lot of grumbling at the start of oh, conference and kind of this is this is just more more pointless European football when what we all what we all actually want is just Real Madrid playing Bayern Munich constantly. But if you look at the teams that have been involved, they've taken it seriously. You look at the scenes not just in the final but the semi-finals, the quarterfinals, the last 16. The attendances have been pretty good. The games have been fantastic. It's been really balanced. And I, I do think it's a genuinely kind of instructive thing that the A fans like evenly balanced games, that it's much better for Roma or Marseille or Feyenoord to be playing teams of their level than being stuffed by the European giants every every other week. Um, but also that that these competitions mean what we want them to mean. So if we if the teams involved, if the players and the coaches and the fans all decide actually these games matter, then lo and behold they matter because actually none of this actually means anything. None of it has any inherent value. And how we kind of what? see, 
Well, no, but it, do you know what I mean? Like, like if you no, look no, at the, no, the, 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 the FA Cup is kind of the converse that that the FA Cup used to be the biggest thing, the biggest show in town, and then we all decided actually it's not that important anymore, and all of a sudden it wasn't that important. So it's kind of up to us to decide how much this stuff means. And one of the things that's been really heartening about Europe this year is not just that the, the teams in the Conference League have taken it seriously. Even Leicester, I mean, Rogers was very dismissive of it when they dropped into it. But by the by the end, when he thought he might win something, he was quite keen on it. But even in the Europa League, you've seen teams taking the Europa League really seriously. And hopefully that is the start of something rather than kind of an, an anomaly that, that disappears next year. Well, sadly, Manchester United and Arsenal back in it next year. So we'll, we'll see yeah. if that continues. But, but I do, through complete luck, but I think it's been a very good time to launch a third European competition because... We had a pandemic where no one could go to games and everyone spent quite a lot of time wallowing in the history of the game and like going, oh yeah, look, remember when Anderlecht were good? Remember when Feyenoord were good? Remember when Roma were, were good? And, and suddenly his, I think, honestly, I think that people are more invested in both fans that are going to games, like you said, but also just generally as well. It's like, it was quite exciting to see Roma v Feyenoord in a final. Just felt yeah. like you'd been transported back to the, the 1980s or 90s or something. So yeah, I agree. Next year's final will be in Prague, which is uh, a little more travel-friendly, I would guess, than Tirana, albeit not at a much bigger ground, 20,000 capacity. We'll see if that stays the same. That was the UEFA Europa Conference League final. Up next, we'll look ahead to the much easier to say Champions League final. Saturday, 8 o'clock in Paris, we reach the climax of the football season. There is the Champions League final, and we have a real blue-blooded final as Liverpool take on Real Madrid for the second time in five years. Real will be looking for the 14th title, while Liverpool will be looking for title number seven. It promises to be a very close encounter. Currently, the betting Liverpool are 21-20, to the draw is 5-2, to and Real Madrid are 12-5. to Carlo Ancelotti is the first ever manager to reach five different European finals. Three of them will have been against Liverpool and since the introduction of the last 16 in 2003, Real are the first team in Champions League history to lose matches in the round of 16, quarter-finals and semi-finals and still reach the final. Real Madrid have won their last seven Champions League finals. This is Real Madrid's 56th game of the season versus Liverpool's 63rd. Karim Benzema has scored 10 goals in his last five Champions League games and he's particularly impressive against Premier League teams. He has scored seven goals in his last four games against Premier League opposition. Benzema is currently 9-2 to score the first goal and he is 7-5 to score at any time. Both teams have had really different approaches to this final. Real Madrid wrapped up their league a long time ago and have been resting and getting players ready for this game, whilst Liverpool have been involved in a number of tough games as they lost out on the last day of the season against Man City in their bid to win a domestic treble. It promises to be a cracking game, and you can find out these odds and more at paddyparrot.com or indeed the Paddy Parrot app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. Be gambleaware.org. And please remember, take time to think. Stand and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad free on The Athletic, this is the Totally Football Show. It's Alan Kennedy, and he goes on, and he scores! Kennedy, the unlikely man again. 
sounds of the last time Real Madrid lost the European Cup final. It was against Liverpool and it was in Paris 41 years ago today, if you're listening on Thursday. Carl, is that your favourite song by Adam and the Ants? Yes, yes. Uh, did you ever hear about the gig where Gary Newman apparently crashed the stage? And they... No, sorry, Adam Ant crashed the stage of a Gary Newman concert and started freelance rapping to cars. Right, no, I didn't hear that. And how come you know about that and you don't know who Keith Houchin is? I told you. <laughs> Childminders. Weird, weird social fabric I've got here. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, on to the Champions League final. Uh, Real Madrid have appeared in seven finals and won them all since that defeat. It's worth resurrecting Colin Miller's doozy of a stat. Since 2001, Spanish teams have played non-Spanish teams 16 times in European finals. And they've won all of them. A uh, bit awkward, maybe, though, Duncan, that this one's in Paris? Um, well, I mean, this is now the most common European Cup final ever, the third time they've met. Um, so I guess on that basis, it is Liverpool's turn to win. Um, it's hard to call, isn't it? I, I'm slightly concerned about Mo Salah. Um, I think he's gone a little bit Gaza 1991. Um, he's sort of so... He's not a sort of man you imagine to be het up, but he's repeatedly said how he's looking for revenge and he wanted to play Real Madrid and it's time to, to you know, make up for 2018. So I'm half expecting him to... Um, it's a good job that um, Gary Parker and Gary Charles aren't playing for Real Madrid because I'd be concerned uh, what might happen early doors. Yeah, and Roger Milford's not the referee, so he won't not be sent off, <laughs> even though... Uh, he blatantly should have been. Uh, is 2018 the, the big narrative here, Rory? Or is it or is it more about the fact that you just can't beat Real Madrid in the Champions League or that, that Liverpool's season will obviously be a completely miserable failure if they only end up with two domestic cups? Yeah, I mean I, I think I think I think we're all full on clop out if they don't if they don't win the Champions <laughs> League final. I mean, no question he's massively underperformed. Um 20, you can see why 2018's really compelling it's a really obvious uh it, it does have a kind of cyclical um quality to it i think the most interesting point about 2018 is that the two teams have effectively kind of changed positions or places in the way that they play obviously rail have got all that experience all those medals they've got um, you know much higher standard of player than than liverpool had in 2018 but they play in those surges that were liverpool's hallmark four years ago and whereas in kiev you had basically real trying to contain liverpool by you know by fair means or foul in Paris, you'll have Liverpool trying to assert control while trying to contain those Real Madrid surges. Because that's what they—that's how Real have got here—is by producing kind of five, ten, occasionally two-minute spells in which they're completely irresistible. You cannot stop them, and they will score. Um, but other than that, they're—they're they're not always the most cogent team, I think. And that's the—that's the thing that intrigues me is whether Liverpool, because they—they they have that awareness of what it's like to be a surge team, whether they are slightly better placed to cope with a surge team than maybe Chelsea or City or PSG. Midfield, Carl, might be crucial here. You've obviously got Modric, Kroos, Casemiro, all did the, the three-peat uh, when Madrid were unstoppable in this competition. But but Liverpool, Thiago Adal, Fabinho only just back in training. That, that's going to be a significant, significant miss if one or both of them don't make it. Very big thing, I think. Ideally, Klopp would want to go with that middle three of Fabinho, Henderson and Thiago, you'd imagine here. But to, to go to Rory's point, Liverpool probably will have to risk a little bit of control due to the issues they have in central midfield. Naby Keita is a player who, in the nicest way possible, you don't really want to apply him past the Champions League quarterfinal because he does risky things with the ball, but will probably have to, to play more than half an hour 
in Paris, I reckon, due to injury. I think also one of the big running battles will be Vinicius Zuno versus Trent Alexander-Arnold. Because, you know, you don't want Trent Alexander-Arnold to play like an orthodox right back. You want him to get forward, which means there's going to be a lot of space for Vinicius to access. Uh, and then there's the extra layer of Kamavinga, who, if we talk about surges, a lot of these surges that Real Madrid get come from Carline going to his bench and going, okay, Kamavinga, it's your turn now to do Kamavinga things, which are brilliant in their simplicity and yet perfection in execution. Yeah, just on Katie, he, he's been, I think he's been really impressive the last few months, actually, but he had a terrible performance against Madrid mm. away last season. Really, really bad. But I think that game was, Liverpool were in the midst of their very odd, dark spell at that point. So, I mean, Liverpool have got, they have been pressing more in the Champions League than they have in the in the Premier League. So I could, I know what everyone's saying, but I can also see them really coming out and going a bit 2018 and almost trying to blow Real Madrid away in that first 20 minutes. So, I mean, Klopp's got his lowest win percentage against any team against Real Madrid in the Champions League. So they are a little bit of a of a difficult prospect for him. So I, I imagine that, you know, they've gone through a lot of uh, a lot of potential ways of setting up against them. But um, it's a fascinating final. It's it's. I'm I'm just glad it's not a, a final between two teams from the same league because there is that's never as good as it and you know Real Madrid against Liverpool is you know as glamorous as it gets pretty much. Karim Benzema ten goals in his last five knockout games. Carlo Ancelotti aiming to become the first coach to win the European Cup slash Champions League four times. Uh, Rory, will, will Jurgen Klopp don a suit for this? Do you think we know Carlo's going to be looking cool? He um I think Klopp did Klopp wear a track suit for 2019 I don't think I've ever seen Jurgen Klopp in a suit I presume no, I don't think one. I have but that's why I asked the question I just thought is he going to take this seriously or not oh, well I mean it's, that is a, I, mean, it, <laughs> I think you, he tells on the tues of disrespecting the competition by refusing to dress up for it that's definitely definitely the case um, he was really I went to the media day yesterday um, and Klopp was really really effusive about Ancelotti he called him a role model uh, said that they are quite. I think they're quite close friends they apparently didn't have dinner while Ancelotti was at Everton, as they were, they were too respectful of the of the tensions. But I, I think he Klopp is is not in not in thrall to Ancelotti, not in awe of him. But I think he regards him as you know very much a paragon of management, and he he won't be. I don't think Klopp will be thinking, oh, this is this is the kind of chaotic Real Madrid that, that maybe we all see, where the, everything just kind of happens on the pitch, and there's mm-hmm. no real there's no real system, no real direction. I think he he is a big fan of the way that, that Ancelotti puts his teams his teams together, the way that he has that innate sense of, of how a team should be balanced. And Carl's completely right. He's used his subs really, really well in this tournament so far. Um, and that may well be where things are won and lost. I think if Liverpool don't have Thiago, that changes things. It probably shifts it in, into Madrid as favourites. Um, my instinct is that Thiago may well play for 45 minutes or an hour, whatever he can manage. Um, Fabinho trained yesterday, so you assume he'll be okay. But Camavinga, Rodrigo, I think will probably start on the bench. The Real have game changers who can come on. And bear in mind that against City, Ancelotti finished that game without any of that experienced midfield on the pitch. That there was it was Camavinga, Valverde, and someone else who I've forgotten, Lucas Vazquez maybe. And that shows that there is you know there are two kind of iterations of this Real Madrid team, and they can both hurt you. Whose position would you rather be in, Carl? Ancelotti having won the league with four games to go and, and had a little stroll for the last few weeks or, or Jurgen Klopp, who every game that his team has played in the last month or so has been massive, high intensity, etc. I think it's I think it's Ancelotti. I think finals are very different from 
and it sounds ridiculous, it's very simple to say, but the finals are very different to, to football as we know them. And this is why Mourinho, despite the fact I don't think he'll probably ever win a league title again in the top five leagues, this is why Mourinho is very good at finals because he understands that simple thing of don't lose it before you even try and play good football. Just make sure you don't lose the game. And Ancelotti seems to have a mastery of momentum swings and intangibles and all those things that we can't properly quantify, although Duncan's trying his hardest to. And there is something about Klopp and his records in finals and the way Liverpool are coming into this into this final quite hurt. This is this will be their sixty third game of the season, so that's the maximum amount an English team can play. That makes you think Real Madrid can just sneak it on that weird intangibleness that uh, makes main events so interesting. It would be good if it ended nil nil. Liverpool won on penalties and they won three <laughs> cups in a season without scoring a goal in the final. I mean, that I, for me, that would be the greatest triumph of all. But FIFA Pro, the um, the players, the International Players Union, have published a piece of research that um, that Salah and Mane, because of the African Cup of Nations, have played. 17 more games than Benzema this season. I think they've played, but this will be their 70th game of the season. Um, Benzema's on 53. The issue, I guess, is, is Liverpool's tiredness greater than that slight difficulty that all teams have in getting yourselves back up to that level of intensity? Does Real have had a month off? And it is really hard for teams to to stop and then start again, especially when you're coming in against a team that's that's not had to drop its level at all. And the best example of that is 2019, when Liverpool and Spurs, for some reason, it was really weird at the time. I don't think we maybe understood quite how weird it was. There was three weeks between the end of the Premier League and the start and the Champions League final, which made no sense. I don't understand why that happened. But they were both clearly underclubbed, totally underclubbed. They weren't. They didn't look. Neither of them Spurs played better in that game than Liverpool did, but neither of them looked. It felt like, like a themselves. preseason friendly, didn't it? Yeah, it was played at that sort of pace. And I, I, because Real have had a bit of a stroll, and they've not been playing well the last the last month or so, you you wonder whether. The challenge for them is can they get themselves back to that level of intensity that they were at for, say, the City game and they've not really had to touch since? Uh, Camilla Cabello, in case you're wondering, is performing at the opening ceremony. Um, means something to Carl, I suppose, if maybe not to, to Duncan. It means something to you as well. Camilla Cabello is, is, is a former member of Fifth Harmony, who we know is a, a, a group that played many a WrestleMania, Matt. You, Did we they? should know this. They've played, they've played a WrestleMania or two. Uh, yes, she has a fantastic song uh, that came out in 2017 called Havana that uh, I recommend listening to. And she will be standing in for Kelly Clarkson in the latest series of The Voice US. So I'll be looking forward to see which football club adopts her as their new patron going forward. Well, she's promising to respect her Latin heritage. Will that give a slight advantage to Real Madrid? No. Uh, right, next up, a word on the Champions League holders for a couple more days at least. All set for the Champions League final, Greg. Another crack at Madrid, eh? No, it's not the same. Another quadruple's off, but no, it's not that. It's Sergio Ramos. Ramos doesn't play for Madrid now? I know, but without Ramos, it just doesn't seem like they're the baddies. It's a chance for Liverpool to end on a high this weekend and to celebrate Paddy Power offering money back as a free bet if one leg of your fourfold bet builder on the match lets you down. Paddy Power! Pre-match online bet put a bet only. Minards 1 to 5 per leg. Max free bet £10 per day, 7 day, free bet expiry. Excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Busy week for the UK government, having possibly soberly assessed the Chelsea takeover. They finally approved the £4.25 billion buyout of the West London club by a consortium led by LA Dodgers co-owner Todd Bowley. Premier League also gave Bowley the green light on Tuesday. Party time for Chelsea fans and invite as many guests as you want, guys. Um, Rory, it's another English club under American ownership in the Premier League. What's the appeal? I think the appeal for a long time was that American owners and investors sort of looked at the Premier League and, and thought that English football was was advanced in a lot of ways and obviously hugely popular, but maybe hadn't quite tapped out its broadcast revenues, its, uh, its like merchandising streams, all that stuff that American sports do really well. What's interesting about the, the Bowley consortium buying Chelsea is that for the most part, the American owners that have come in have bought low with the aim, eventually, if they're all completely honest, of selling high at some point. So FSG at Liverpool for 350 million quid. The Glazers don't pay any money at all for Manchester United because it, it all comes off Manchester United. Um, you know, Cronky gets Arsenal after a while with the price eventually kind of skyrocketing because of Usmanov's involvement. This is a premium purchase. This, this is buying high, and we've not really seen that. It's the most expensive sports team in history now. More expensive than the Dodgers. There is, you know, it's, it's 2.5 billion initially with further pledges and promises for another 2 billion. It is, it's a huge sum of money. And it's basically been submitted on the, on the grounds that TV revenues will keep on going up, that there are other revenue streams out there to be, to be exploited. Someone keeps saying NFTs, apparently. Um, they're, they're big on NFTs. They think that's a thing that's going to work for them. So we don't really know what shape this takes in the future. Jo- I think Jonathan Lewin, the Guardian, did a great piece on Bowley's ownership of the Dodgers, which has seen them spend a load of money on players, but has also seen season tickets. I think the cheapest is now $1,400. The most expensive is $13,000. Um, they, they make money to spend money. That's kind of the... the the way the Dodgers have been run. I guess we have to assume the same at, at Chelsea, but it is a deal with loads and loads of questions over it. The whole thing has been extremely odd. They seem to like data, Duncan. So appealing to you, if nothing else. Oh uh, yeah, love that stuff. Um, yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, I wonder if they've looked at the data that in May 1994, uh, Chelsea had fewer than 10,000 fans for a home game in Coventry, but you know, times change. So, um, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I think in the sense of Chelsea's squad feels quite, in flux at the moment, they're they're losing a few key players. Obviously, there's talk of a big uh, war chest, as you have to call it, um, for Tuchel to spend. But it's not just a case of. I mean, replacing Rudiger, he played over five thousand minutes this season, which in all competitions, which is hardly ever done. I think only Connor Cody's done that in the last eight years. So it's a huge ask to to replace him. And I, you do wonder, you know, everyone kind of talks about, you know. Did Arsenal miss out on fourth because you know Manchester United would be better next year and etc. But you could see a scenario where Chelsea do struggle a bit to sort of get up to speed, and then that then reflects on the price that has been paid for them quite a lot. So yeah, it's going to be a very interesting summer and start of next season, I think. 
Well, I, for one, welcome our new American overlords. I'd like to remind them that as a trusted Chelsea TV personality, I can be helpful in rounding up others. Uh, plenty more Chelsea takeover chat on this week. Straight out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. will be recording that after this, so you can hear it at some point on Thursday. Uh, an England squad was announced. Gareth Southgate picked his boys for the flurry of Nations League fixtures with Hungary, Germany, and Italy. Carl, you're delighted at the presence of Big Thick Energy in this one. Oh, superb. He's, I remember watching him uh, play for AC Milan in the Europa League game against Manchester United in, in 2021. And I just went, this boy is the truth. What have Chelsea done? They need to go get their receipt and, and get, bring him back. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted that he helped AC Milan win the Scudetto. And there was a point where it looked like Harry Maguire might not make Euro 2020 and and I thought well if you're going to play through it at the back go get Tomori right now he is exceptional at proactive defending he's brilliant at his 1v1s I'm probably going to spend all of this summer pestering Duncan to help me create a metric one for defenders and one for strikers and the defensive one is basically uh, the Dominic Calvin-Lewin test which is yeah you can be good at so and so things but if Dominic Calvert-Lewin can bully you you probably shouldn't be playing at a top six club and you probably shouldn't be going to a national team that wants to win um, the World Cup uh, and Tomori absolutely passes the Dominic Calvert-Lewin test and I think the striker test will probably be something like can you make Eric Dyer turn around and face his own goal and if you can't then you probably shouldn't <laughs> be playing for a Champions League club so Duncan yeah we're going to be working on that all summer alright I'm on it <laughs> Um, Tomori, by the way, 13 clean sheets he helped Milan to in Syria. They only conceded 0.66 goals on average with him in the pitch. Um, Rory, apparently some Spurs fans are, are angry that Eric Dyer uh, wasn't called up because he plays in a back three. But I mean, as Carl's just alluded to there, there are weaknesses to his game. And, and also, Gareth Southgate doesn't need to assess what Eric Dyer can do for England, does he? He already knows that. No, I mean, I think fans generally are angry about stuff. Um, I'd be surprised. My view as a fan would be, I, I don't want any of my team's players to do on international duty in the summer. I want them all to have a nice holiday. I, couldn't, mm. I generally couldn't care less whether that they get the honour of playing for their country. But yeah, I think the, the main thing for Southgate seems to have been, I know what quite a lot of these players do. So He's not called up Henderson because he knows what Henderson does. He doesn't need to, to get to know Eric Dyer because Eric Dyer's been around the England setup for for years. I do think with centre-half, that's the one place where Southgate does have, not issues, but there isn't really a clear sense of what he wants to do or who he wants to do it with. And that, that may be a valid reason to feel that it would have been worth having Dyer there to to have a look at him next to other people. But at the same time, I mean, does it, does it, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter whether he misses a couple of Nations League games? Not, not really. If Eric Dyer's going to go to the World Cup... Eric Dyer will go to the World Cup. There's no, yeah, and the benefit is he gets a break this summer. He gets, you know, a proper six weeks off, which they, a lot of the players won't have had for, what, three years? Maybe more. I think one thing that we often forget every time a new England squad comes out is that Gareth Sarkey doesn't necessarily treat England call-ups like an employee of the month award for, for yeah. duty. It's, it's, it's never a, well done, you've done for your club. Here's a call-up. It's very much the England team is its own ecosystem I need to know what you bring to this ecosystem. And if I do not think you bring the correct qualities, I'm going to completely disregard you. There was a fantastic tweet from someone that essentially went, James Justin's appearance in the squad is Gareth Southgate telling you he watches Leicester games. He is not interested in James Madison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And it, it's that, right? Madison's had a very good second half of this season, but Gareth Southgate very clearly does not have want for that sort of player profile in his England team right now, especially when he's still getting to grips with what Jack Grealish is. And I, I think very much Madison probably needs Grealish to have less parties with Wayne Lineker and, and more time in front of a Y-Scout to prove to Southgate that these players can exist in the England team. That applies to a lot of us, I think. Um, Jared Bowen's managed to penetrate the ecosystem, Duncan, though, from Hereford to, to the Nations League. You, you couldn't write it. Uh, you couldn't write that. It's against the law, actually. But um, <laughs> apparently he's only the second person from Herefordshire to ever, if he plays, to play for England. So um, that's huge for the... Who's the other? The cat. I can't remember. Someone from a long, long time ago. Um, probably fought in the Boer War as per the every England player pre nineteen hundred, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's huge for the the semi Welsh county. Um, but yeah, I think Bowen's been absolutely brilliant this season, and um, he obviously plays. I think if you compare him and Madison, yeah, they both got pretty good numbers this year. But Madison is sort of player that you need to kind of build around a little bit. Whereas I think you can pretty much drop Jared Bowen anywhere in the in the front three, and he'll just he'll do a job. And I think you know West Ham. Uh, are trying to hang on to him. I, th- I imagine that might become more difficult as time goes on. There was a brilliant interview with Jared Bowen on, the, on Five Live about six months ago in which he talked about kind of going back to his the farm that he grew up on and like hauling sacks of potatoes round and doing some proper like manual, manual, like actual work, not the sort of pretend work that we all do. And it was simultaneously really kind of stirring and... <laughs> sweet and romantic but also a little bit like Jared do you, do you really feel as though you're giving the best impression of Herefordshire here is this what is this the image you want to project that you go back to Herefordshire and immediately you are lugging potatoes around on your back like it's the 19th century I just thought it was a it was a it's a difficult line to strike between I have I have a romantic and different backstory and I am a walking cliche if Jimbo was here he'd come up with a really good pun about potatoes and chips or something. Um, but I'll just tell you that Jack Sharp, according to producer Charlie, was the other Herefordshire native who played for England once upon a time. Um, no Dominic Calvert-Lewin, unsurprisingly, in the squad after his season, dog by injury. But he did post on Instagram about his struggles physically and mentally this season, saying to all the young kings suppressing emotion, I advise you to talk to a friend, family member or someone that will listen. Talking saved my life. Well done him. All right. Any other business? Ah, yes. The championship playoff final. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus leg. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. Apparently, there have been some Huddersfield supporters concerned that all the attention ahead of this match is going to everyone's second favourite team, the two-time European champions, Nottingham Forest. Uh, Odd. Uh, Anyway, in a bid to attempt to redress the balance, I had a chat with a chicken about some terriers. Or more specifically, I spoke to the great Stephen Chicken of the Huddersfield Examiner about how town made it to Wembley and what we can expect from them. So, Stephen, you're here to redress the rampant forest bias in the media. Um, you've written yourself, haven't you, about how kind of forest has been seen as the story here. But but it's not like Huddersfield come into this in, with a kind of drab backstory of their own. You know, the, the way they've defied expectations from last season, the fact they've got such a bright young manager, that the recruitment's really interesting. There's, there's lots to love about Huddersfield this season, too. There is. I mean, they were one of the favourites for relegation coming into this season. And I was speaking to a bookmaker the other day and they said that if you look at the odds for promotion at the start of the season, Town are the one of one of the biggest outsiders there's, there's been in the championship and certainly the biggest since uh, Crystal Palace, I think in 2013, I think it was. So, you know, they, they've spent the last four years in relegation battles, two in the Premier League, two in the Championship and expectations and the mood coming into this season was pretty low and they've completely defied all of our expectations and had a brilliant season. So you can't really complain at this point. And it's strange that they are underdogs according to the bookies. When you think about the games between Forest and Huddersfield this season, all right, Forest have won two to one, but they've all been incredibly close and, and Huddersfield won at the City Ground, which is not something that many teams have done. No, precisely. I mean, the FA Cup game, Town played a very rotated side, heavily rotated side. They didn't have a, a huge number of players that would normally be in the first team for that game. So I think we're almost calling that one a, a mulligan. But the, the two games between the sides, to be honest, I think Forrest have, have dominated, in fact, the three games uh, between the sides. But I think that sort of is indicative of how Town have been in a lot of big games this season. For, Forrest's record against the rest of the top six in the top ten this season hasn't been great. Towns has been excellent, particularly away from home. And it's because they're very, very good at stopping teams from playing at their best. So even even if Town don't look like they're dominating a game, they have a real tendency to, to find a way to win in those games. And part of that is the, the flexibility shown by the manager this season, isn't it? And I know a lot of people talk about Steve Cooper and, and the job that he's done. You know, even Jurgen Klopp name-checked him, didn't he, at the, at the LMAs. But Corbyn, just as impressive, really. I mean, prob- arguably the two best coaches in the division this season, you'd say. But but Corbyn in particular, now he's had the, the time to settle in, having just kept them up last season. He, he's, he seems to have changed his approach to play, doesn't he? He can kind of mix it up mid-match where he was a bit rigid before that. Absolutely, yeah. Last season, one of our criticisms was he was quite dogmatic and, and stuck to his way of playing, even after sort of midway through last season they had an injury crisis which hit them really really hard because they had a very thin squad last year and he still had his team trying to play the same way when they just weren't really suited to it but they've come into this season 
And Lee Bromby, the head of football operations, is keen to point out he didn't really have a pre-season before his first year. So getting his ideas in place was extremely tough. And he described it as a, an unfair situation to, to drop Carlos into. But this season, he's he's changed his approach. They were very man-to-man marking all over the pitch last season. And quite simply, it didn't work. They conceded the most goals in the division. This year, they've gone to more of a sort of a traditional zonal system and marking the space at the back. They've made a lot of defensive recruitment that has been absolutely superb, which I'm sure we'll come on to in a bit. But Carlos himself has also been a lot, lot more flexible, particularly over the second half of the season. And you know, practically game by game, they've changed their formation, they've changed personnel to make the most of of the chances that they get and to minimise the opposition threat. And, you know, even sometimes when the team sheet comes out now, we're looking at it going, I don't know what shape they're going to play. They've played 3-4-3, 3-5-2, 4-3-3, 4-4-2, and they've changed it almost week by week. And the fact that they've been able to keep that level of consistency despite being so adaptable and, and making so many changes, I think speaks really highly of of how well-drilled the players are in, in what Corbran wants and the level of preparation that goes into each game. And you, you touched on the recruitment there. There was a big piece up on The Athletic last week about the kind of unusual processes that Huddersfield go through to get players. But they scour sort of every level of football, don't they? Levi Colwell's got a lot of headlines this season on loan from Chelsea but but then you've got Sorba Thomas at, at the other end who's been absolutely critical and, and recruited from from almost a different world of football yeah he came from non-league was playing for Boreham Wood had never played above non-league level before and has come into the side he, he signed sort of last January but but only made appearances from the bench and he'd been playing a lot for the B team and this season he's come in almost by accident because they had a bout to COVID at the start of the season that meant he got his chance on the opening day of the league season against Derby. He really impressed in that game playing at left wing back, then switched across to right wing back when the COVID abated uh, and has then sort of moved forward onto the right wing. And, you know, the contribution he's had has been excellent, but he's not the only one. You know, they've had Josh Caroma, also had a non-league back background. He signed from Leighton Orient a couple of years ago. He was top scorer last season. Hasn't really been firing this season, but, you know, he's he's still a young lad. He's he's still got time to get back to his best. They've had Lee Nichols in, who had played a handful of championship games years ago, who has come from the bench at MK Dons and has been arguably their best player this season. I, I don't think he's made a single mistake in goal, which is absolutely incredible. He was in the, the championship team of the season. They've had a lot of free transfers, like Matty Pearson came in from Luton. Tom Lees and Jordan Rhodes came in from Sheffield Wednesday, who were obviously relegated last season. Ollie Turton had never played championship football before, has come in from Blackpool in League One, and he had a difficult start, but he's really grown into championship football, and I think most people would have him in their starting lineup now. Josh Ruffles had played one championship game for Coventry about 10 years ago and has been capable backup for Harry Toffolo. Toffolo himself had come from League One a couple of years ago. Lewis O'Brien came through the academy, has, has probably been their best outfielder for the last three seasons now. And John Russell as well, another one who was released by Chelsea last year. He had a pretty, by all accounts, pretty unremarkable spell on loan at, at Accrington in League One last year. Spent the first half of this season in the B team and has come 
come through into the side in the second half of the season and has been basically undroppable. So, you know, that they've I spoke to, to Lee Bromby about this recently. There's a piece up on our site about it and you know, they were talking about how critical that, that B team process has been. That, that it was quite controversial five years ago when they ditched the traditional academy setup. They went to something that's a bit more like what Brentford have, where they're looking at getting players that have slipped the net elsewhere. And they want to put them through that B team system, which is a lot more flexible than the the underage groups and get the players accustomed to life at the club playing B team football first so that then they're ready for first team football when they need to be called upon. And, you know, the evidence is that that system is is really working. And, you know, you've ended up with a squad that's cost something like two and a half million pounds now 90 minutes away from the Premier League, which is incredible, really. But, you know, even if it even if they miss out, you know, I think they're in a, a strong position now. And all the criticisms that we had and the fans had over the past few years, hopefully have, have gone now and things are looking much better for the future. And one of those people responsible for sorting things out behind the scenes is the chief executive, Dean Hoyle. He's getting on his bike this weekend. Tell us more. Yeah, he's he's come back into day-to-day running of the club midway through this season, having been sort of a silent partner um, for the past couple of years. You know, everyone speaks very highly of, of Dean and the, the influence he has and, you know, his know-how having been through all this before. But you're right, he's he's getting back on his bike, him and his, his wife Janet are, are joining a group of riders, riding from Huddersfield to Wembley, I believe, by the time this goes out, they might already be underway and they're raising money for a memorial garden that's going to be built at the at the stadium. There was a, a fan, Daz, who unfortunately um, passed away uh, last month after a battle with cancer and they're going to be building a, a memorial garden at the stadium in his honour and they're raising funds towards that. Any money that they raise beyond that is going to go to a load of local charities that, that are close to the club as well. So if you if you search the club website or the examiner website for the Dean Hoyle bike ride, you'll find the details of that and, and how you can donate. It's a, a really good cause. Magnificent. Stephen, thanks so much for your time today. I, I nearly said enjoy Sunday then, but that would be disingenuous. <laughs> uh, I hope you have a nice trip to Wembley. Great stuff. Cheers. Stephen Chicken there. All right, the forest bit then. Duncan, you were at Wembley last Saturday for for Wickham. It didn't go so well. Um, Can you give me any tips on how I might enjoy the day regardless of result? Well, it's still worth absolutely legging it down Wembley way to beat the crowds uh, at full time, I would suggest. But yeah, I mean, I can empathise with the Huddersfield fans a little bit in the sense of, you know, Wickham were in, in a similar position in the sense of playing a team that everyone said should be back in a higher division and had the weight of history. And, and to be fair to Sunderland, you know, they had 50,000 fans. The noise for their second goal was, I think, the, the most incredible noise I've ever heard in a, in a football stadium. So, as I said last week, there was a slight Forest element to the playoffs this year. Obviously, Forest themselves in the Championship. Um, Nigel Clough, manager of Mansfield. And obviously, Sunderland were the club where Brian Clough finished his playing career. So, with Sunderland already ticking it off, you could see Mansfield and Forest. Um, completing the job so nothing to worry about great I'm taking that as red then um, big thing I think as, as I've been saying for months Rory is, is this is potentially the, the last dance in, in Garibaldi Red for, for a lot of these players Brennan Johnson Jed Spence James Garner Philip Zinkenagel maybe more who knows maybe even Steve Cooper has only got a year left on his contract are you with me in thinking that it's kind of now or never for Forest, or, or can they do a Brentford and lose the final one year and win it the next 
also logically no i take you, you you'll be much more familiar with um with the kind of ins and outs of the forest squad than i am and kind of the contract status and, and stuff i think there's a couple who obviously won't be there jed i mean jed spence will be in the premier league next year whoever he's playing for it, there's no question about that i think there's quite big teams watching jed spence um my, my instinct with forest is actually that it may not be the last dance in terms of the club being able to compete at this level because if you look at the teams coming down who are always automatically the favourites to go straight back up. Burnley are going to be coached by Vincent Company and essentially be a Manchester City youth team, or they'll be still dealing with the kind of financial impact of relegation and their takeover. Um, Watford don't look especially well-placed at this point, but they never do, so you can assume that Watford will get promoted in this year. And to be honest, I think Norwich are a little bit due a, maybe a, a year or two of, of realignment. Norwich don't look like they are necessarily in a position to bounce straight back up next season. So I think Forrest would be probably the the favourites to be able to sustain it for another year or so at least. And then you have this division within the Championship where if you don't have parachute payments and if you don't have an extremely rich owner, then I think there's going to be a lot of clubs cutting their cloth um, and slashing wage bills this summer. I think a lot of teams have run out of money so or are, are very conscious that they don't want to run out of money. So I, I would expect Forrest, if they don't win, to be challenging again next season. I think that's reasonably likely. OK, that makes me feel even better. Um, Carl, for whoever wins this game, Huddersfield or Forrest, Brentford are the blueprint, right? Everybody says, oh, you come up by the playoffs, you've got no preparation time, it's really difficult. Lo and behold, they were the only of the promoted sides who stayed up and they did it really comfortably. Asterix for Christian Eriksen there. Should we put one there? Um, I'm going to wait for the Matt Davis-Adams test in about November next season where we're going, who's going to get relegated? And then you'll name a candidate. And Well, it'll be Bournemouth, wouldn't it? We know that. <laughs> <laughs> I already did Wolves the other week. Wolves going down next season along with Bournemouth and somebody else. Uh, I, th- I think I think the, of the promoted teams, the one that necessarily worries me the most, most is, is Fulham because... I've been burnt too many times by Fulham and I'm absolutely not going to trust Mitrovic to be a Premier League striker. Not not this time. He's not getting back in my fantasy football team again. Whereas I think, yeah, I think maybe probably too early for Huddersfield if they go up via the playoffs. Forrest, James Garner style questions I have over that team. If they can keep Garner for another year in the Premier League, yeah, they might be able to, to be all right around like January and then, you know, World Cup, January transfer window. We'll see what happens next. Weird one. It's going to be weird for everyone. <laughs> All right, particularly me. Uh, as Duncan mentions, shout out to Nigel Clough. His Mansfield Tech on Port Vale in the League Two final. That's on Saturday. Mansfield were joint bottom in October, but no team in League Two has taken more points since the start of November. It's been a difficult season for Port Vale as well, with their manager having had a lot of time off, but that should be a decent game too. All right, that'll just about do us for today. I think many thanks to Stephen for joining us earlier, to Rory, to Carl, to Duncan and to producer Charlie. We'll be back on Monday. Can't guarantee what physical or emotional state I'll be in, but back nonetheless. Do join us for that if you can. Until then, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.